I was once at a magic show and got accused of being a plant. What gave you away? No, I wasn't. A, I wasn't a plant. You come on. They magicked me. It's time to just admit to that. Come on. I swear, man. Okay. <laughs> And we're off another series. Series three. Welcome to All The Way Through, Series 3, Episode 1. This is the podcast, if you haven't already noticed, journeying through the Louis Theroux back catalogue to find out whether we love him as much as we thought we did. My name is Matthew Dunn-Miles and I am joined, as ever, by Alex Watson. Hello. Alex, have you ever felt like your life was spinning out of control and you didn't know the steps to sort it out? Put your hand up if you've ever felt like that. I'm putting two hands up right now. Well, this is the episode for you. The episode is called Self-Fulfillment, this episode of Weird Weekends. But the main thing that we're exploring really is hypnosis, the idea of being put into trances or being convinced of different mindsets. Could I just ask quickly what you're wearing for this episode? I am in a t-shirt, but I have braces on like I am some sort of Wall Street sleazebag. What about yourself? I'm just wearing casual clothes, just keeping it casual because it's not actually about what I look like. But I do have a copy of the Glow in the Dark Night Sky book because I hear it's a good prop for chatting at women. Oh my God. What is your favourite constellation? Whatever yours is, mine is, mine is the same <laughs> one. So to set the scene, this episode was first broadcast on September the 25th, the year 2000. Happy millennium, everyone. We finally got there. It's more than a year since the last Weird Weekends episode aired. So Louis has grown up in this time. He's still on BBC Two. He's on a nine o'clock slot competing with BBC News. But he was sandwiched between changing rooms at half eight and then Life of Grime at 9.30. What's Life of Grime? Life of Grime was a show about people removing wastes and pests from people's houses. Right, not about the grime music scene. (laughs) No, no, this is... Narrated by John Peel. Uh, it was a very popular show. I've never heard of it. There's hardcore fans out there. They'll back me up on this. The episode opens with Louis and a man who we as yet do not know chanting in a car. I'm fantastic. I'm fantastic. I actually think about this on a regular basis. I still have that playing somewhere in my head often. I'm fantastic. I'm fantastic. I'm fantastic. I'm fantastic. I'm fantastic. Again, made even weirder by the fact that they have to sit directly one in front of each other in the car so that the cameraman can film from the passenger seat. Who's in the driving seat? You know who's in the driver's seat. The big man himself. Although he does get told to get into the right lane quite a lot in this episode. (laughs) He does get corrected on his driving. I love that. Okay, so where are we, Alex? We're in Las Vegas, Nevada. I love the opening scenes of Vegas here because it's only 20 years ago, but it looks really, really different for some reason. It's almost like when you watch the original Ocean's Eleven movie and there's like three casinos in a desert. Vegas just for some reason looks so dated in 2000 and there's nobody there. Yeah, I think there's something about Vegas where because they knock stuff down and rebuild it so often, it does change so dramatically. But also to see Vegas so shot in the day feels really weird. Usually every time you see shots of Vegas, it is nighttime. There is something about that shot 
which is so kind of iconic. So to see like daytime Vegas is really strange. You get to see the mountains in the background as well, which is quite nice. It's a lovely setting. And Louis is there because he's on the search of what he describes as a new breed of entertainers. And they say they're using hypnosis to transform people's lives. And then he kind of mentions that this is a multi-billion dollar personal growth industry, which I was intrigued to see if that was still the case or where that was now. And according to marketresearch.com, sounds like a prestigious title, the total self-improvement market was worth $9.9 billion in 2016, and they expected it to reach $13.2 billion by 2022. I think the thing about the self-improvement industry is that it has evolved. So even though it's not seminars and stuff like that anymore, it's on Instagram and it's on YouTube. How many times do you get those adverts of men sitting in front of their houses with swimming pools and they're like, a year ago I was broke, but I can tell you the three ways for you to be a million. Like, there's all that stuff on YouTube. So yeah, I'm not surprised actually that it's grown. It's just become a different, slightly more tricky thing yeah definitely i feel like the way people talk in this this kind of relentless positivity and talking about goals all the time is how so many more people speak now like you said on social media on instagram on youtube scary how much this has kind of influenced the way the world has gone so louis is walking through as we said a surprisingly quiet vegas on foot i've just written where is everyone maybe it's off season i don't know And his first contact that he's meeting is a guy called Dennis Lowry, who's the director of the American Academy of Hypnosis. Dennis looks, I don't know, I mean, he's got this pencil moustache, quite short hair, tie on, pen in his shirt pocket. Short sleeve shirt as well, like the kind of thing you see on an IT technician. He doesn't look like a master hypnotist, which is what Louis asks. You are a master hypnotist. You're a master hypnotist, Is that true? Yes, it is. Louis' first big question to Dennis probably defines how he shapes the whole documentary. Is hypnotism really real? It is. Um, Sidebar, how do you feel about hypnotism? I've never been hypnotised, so I can't really comment. I don't know. After watching this, well, we'll get to this at the end. But I feel quite grubby about the whole thing. I have faced criticism in my real life for saying that I don't necessarily believe that hypnotism is a thing. Oh, okay, you're a sceptic. You don't even have a mustard seed of faith. I think, like Louis, I am a bit of a sceptic. You've learned that from your parents and, you know, it shows. A hundred percent. If anyone listening has met my parents, they know that that is true. Dennis replies, yes, hypnotism is real. So, must be true. He immediately falls into this pattern of speaking that becomes very, very common among all of the people in this documentary, where he's just talking relentlessly and using sort of repetitive phrases that, I mean, it's almost like he is trying to hypnotise everybody that he speaks to. And he's saying, the mind is the most powerful tool. The mind can do this. The mind can do this. And he's listing off all of the ways in which, of course, hypnotism is real without actually giving you any legitimate reason to believe that hypnotism is real. So then Louis, to kind of instantly get involved in the hypnotism world, asked to be hypnotised on a very noisy, bright daylight Vegas sidewalk. And Dennis says, no problem, he can do that right now. Dennis and Louis stare at each other directly in the eyes. And Dennis starts to talk about all the fascinating buildings of people fading away as Louis is tuning into him. But I, I, <laughs> I wrote... I can't not look at Dennis's top lip. <laughs> the pencil moustache is so distracting because it's slightly wonky on one side. I don't know whether I could switch off. I've never had a moustache, so I don't want to presume, but I feel like that would take so much upkeep to just keep it as a pencil line. Well, Alex, as someone who is currently sporting a moustache, I can tell you 
That is a lot of effort. One false move and it's gone. And also after a day, you've got a little bit of stubble on that top lip. It all looks wrong. That's a daily upkeep sort of thing. So we can at least agree that Dennis is a dedicated person. Yeah, well, he is dedicated, but he needs to get a spirit level out because that (laughs) moustache is wonky. After their sort of face-off, where they stand incredibly close to each other, as you were saying, and I've just written in my notes, awkward as fuck. It's so weird. (laughs) It almost looks like they could be touching tummies. They're inches away from touching belly buttons. What do you think you would think if you walked past that in the street? I think it was Vegas. If it was Vegas, I wouldn't doubt it for a second. True. Two accountants just like facing off. So later that day, Louis visits Dennis at the American Academy of Hypnosis HQ and he's going to join a class to see if he's susceptible to hypnosis. The class are like the biggest bunch of misfits I've ever seen. I don't know where they got these people. There's about five or six people, I think, in there as well as Louis. No one under the age of 30 possibly 40. No. It's a strange bunch. They look like they probably don't have anything else to be doing on a Tuesday afternoon. These are the kind of people who get caught up doing surveys in the middle of the street. So Louis comes in and takes a seat and the class are all asked to close their eyes and hold their hands out in front of them. And they're to imagine that they've got a helium balloon tied to their right thumb and that they're holding an encyclopedia in their left hand, which is heavy. And Dennis talks them through the whole sort of hypnotist spiel that you'll recognise from films and stuff where he's like, oh, the helium balloon's just floating away and the encyclopedia is so heavy. And then basically the idea is that they'll be sort of tricked into moving their thumb upwards and their left hand downwards, which I've just done in real life. What made me laugh here was that the camera cuts to a very close shot of Louis's face and he is grimacing under the weight of that book, struggling. Using his skills he learned when he was pretending that he couldn't lift anything heavy or do any work on a demolition derby car. Get this man an Oscar, for God's sake. The next exercise is to clasp your hands together and imagine that they're stuck with glue and then try to pull them apart. And again, Lou is doing some amazing facial expressions as he tries to pull his hands apart. Yeah, incredible gurning. Then they cut to a Q&A session, which was very cute. Louis puts his hand up to ask a question, which I really enjoyed. He's the only person doing that as well. Louis says that he felt like during the second exercise, he was aware that he could separate his hands, but he just didn't do it. But you didn't though, did you, Louis? Exactly. And that's basically what Dennis says. He says, well, that means you're probably susceptible to hypnosis or to hypnotherapy. After the class, Dennis takes Louis to the hypnosis room. He's not quite as glamorous as the name suggests. Importantly, though, there is a mirror on the wall, which Louis instantly picks up on, (laughs) which makes me think he's not taking this fully seriously, he says. Now, is that so that if you need to, you can hypnotise yourself? Like you could bounce hypno beams into your own eyes off a mirror, which is definitely the kind of thing he's read in a comic book somewhere. I think what I found funny is that I thought that Dennis would immediately be like, don't be silly, be serious. But he's like, no, yeah, I could hypnotise myself. Yeah, all the time. Here becomes the section where Louis gets his first chance to put someone under. As much as he is being a bit silly up to this point, Louis gets quite nervous when he realises that he's going to be the one that's in charge when Dennis goes under. And he asks, is there anything that I should say to you while you're under? What should I do? So Dennis tells him to say, you're a wonderful human being, most importantly. And then I think there's also a bit about you can do anything that you set your mind to. Is that right? Alex, you have the potential within you to accomplish anything you want in life. You are a wonderful human being. Thank you. So then they set up on the couch and Dennis is kind of slouched on the couch and Louis is kneeling at his legs. 
it reminded me of a grandchild and grandfather sort of vibe where like your granddad would fall asleep on the sofa and you want to get close to see if they're really asleep. That's actually not a bad way to sum up their relationship. I quite like Dennis. I think he comes off as a nice guy. And I feel like him and Louis could easily have a sort of granddad, grandson vibe. Louis's first concern before he puts Dennis under is what if they both go under? What happens then? Again, more comic book antics that Louis is worried about here. Dennis does laugh at that, which I think is good and shows that he has a sense of humour. And he says, well, that won't happen because you're the hypnotist, so you won't go under. Kind of moving the ball back over to Louis's court there. So he does the finger, moving his finger up and down to get Dennis to follow the spot. And he starts talking in a very calm way. And you find out that Louis Theroux is actually pretty good at the sort of hypnotist voice. You're feeling very relaxed. You're very relaxed. You're very relaxed. Quite convincing. When Dennis actually goes under, you know that he is because he lets out this big sigh big like dramatic sigh and closes his eyes which i didn't really buy that but okay i bought it because his face relaxes so much that any man that wanted to be on camera and <laughs> that view of his chins and that is no knocks to dennis i just feel that that's a very unflattering angle for him which only could happen if you were truly knocked out but Louis gets right into it. He's doing the phrase as told, but then starts riffing with it. He's just enjoying himself and even knows to do the click to wake him up, which I don't think Dennis has really said to him. Louis clicks his fingers and Dennis opens his eyes, feeling very positive, And he says, I didn't want to come back. I wanted to stay there. Which is a bit morbid, actually. It's kind of nice and morbid and creepy all at the same time. But Louis is clearly very happy with himself. There is a giant grin on his face that he's managed to trick Grandad into falling asleep. Would you like to know about Dennis Lowry's last known movements? Go on. According to his Texas A&M University alumnus page, last sightings of Dennis was in 2013. He was running the Mind, Body, Medicine and Therapy Wellness Center. And apparently the American Academy of Hypnosis ran from January 1980 all the way to 2008. But he left there then and I couldn't see that it still exists. There is now a Las Vegas hypnotherapist center, but it looks totally disconnected from Dennis. So who knows where Dennis is now? Hopefully enjoying some lovely sleep. He'll be getting on a bit now. Hopefully he's just retired in Vegas, he's playing the slot machines. Taking more time to put towards his moustache. After Louis had some guidance from a hypnotist specialist, he goes to meet the real deal, the big potatoes. A guy called Marshall Silver, spelt with a Y, who is apparently the world's fastest hypnotist. I think if there was a movie about Marshall Silver, Jason Sudeikis might play him. Okay, that's fine. I've wrote, looks like an evil David Byrne. Both flattering. Yeah. The two clips that you see when you're introduced to Marshall Silver are quite incongruous. The first one, he looks like he's a performer. It's a classic Vegas, fast-moving stage show where he's wearing sunglasses on stage, even though it's dark and inside. And then the second clip makes him look like one of those injury lawyers in an advert where they're like, if you've had an accident at work and he's just doing the sort of hypnosis spiel that is a lot of words that don't actually mean anything. What we do see is evil David Byrne, Marshall Silver in action. He puts several people to sleep in his footage with a weird method where he kind of just jerks their head back. And then they kind of collapse to the side and he seems to shout the word sleep at them. Did you get a little flashback to the very first Weird Weekends episode with Marcus Lamb? Touch on the Holy Ghost, yeah. Very similar technique. 
But he seems to be just doing this to people at will. There is a line of people at one of his shows and he puts about five of them to sleep at one time. I don't know how healthy that is. What can he really do in that situation? But there's two different sides to Marshall's personality. You find out that he is a stage performer, but he's turned hypnotic motivator. So he's bringing the Vegas show into the injury lawyer universe. And that's how those two marry together. The injury lawyer universe. (laughs) And apparently Marshall has developed a system called subconscious programming, where he motivates people to be more successful in life. The main aim seems to be to make more money, but he says that he can make people happier, healthier, and help them to become millionaires. Crucially though, he can chop a concrete block with his hands. Well, that's what everybody needs to be able to do in order to become a millionaire. I will not trust a man to hypnotise me unless he can chop some concrete. And luckily Marshall has that skill because the video ends with him doing this for unknown reasons. He isn't actually around to be talked to, but when Louis turns up at what seems to be some kind of convention centre, he's introduced to a guy called Michael and also someone else called Pat Williams, who both work for Marshall Silver. They're there helping to set up a day-long seminar, which is free for local business people to attend. And so Louis chats to Michael, who he kind of latches onto in this episode, about Marshall's motives. And Michael goes on at great length into some spiel around it. It's about people helping people. Louis asks, is it a moral mission or is it about people making money? Clearly, Louis is striking a sceptical tone from the start. And Michael says it's a moral mission. Money just comes naturally afterwards. I mean, this is one of these things where he's obviously been fed this stuff the way that he says it, but he says... See, everybody lives, when they live, they go up to a certain standard in their life, and then they become complacent, and we help take their lives to the next level. This money just comes naturally stuff always really gets on my nerves. I find it incredibly patronising from people who have some money to tell people it's a mindset thing. The myth that poverty is some sort of choice that you make with your decisions. I just find that incredibly stressful. Especially when the way it's set up is that you have to shell out a significant amount of money before anything good could ever happen to you. Exactly. The idea that the positive mindset, that's all you need to get around any sort of economic struggles is totally wrong. Weirdly, during this interview segment, which is inside the auditorium where the seminar is going to take place, which is absolutely massive, Marshall Silver walks past Louis and Michael on stage, but doesn't acknowledge them or say anything. At great speed. He just zooms right past and Louis kind of goes, oh, is that Mar- Oh, okay, bye. And Michael assures him that they will speak to him later. He just didn't want to interrupt their interview. But we learn a bit more about Michael in this time. And he says he came in, as he describes himself, as a bottom person. And is now... (laughs) Whatever you're into, Michael. And is now in the Millionaire Mentorship Programme. And Louis asks the crucial question, are you a millionaire? Michael, close to it. Does he mean close mentally or is he actually close to being a millionaire? He keeps saying he's two to three years away from being a millionaire, which I think that sounds like one of those things that people tell you because it's still quite far, but it's within reaching distance. It's not too far away from the only fools and horses mantra. This time next year, we'll be millionaires. Exactly. Just one more seminar and you'll have it. Just as things are getting sort of slightly awkward for Michael where Louis asking the awkward questions about becoming a millionaire. Pat, the other staff member, comes in and says, oh sorry guys, you're going to have to stop the interview now because we have to turn the music on, get the atmosphere ready for everybody coming in. So, oh, what a shame. Sorry, we've got to cut this short just as Michael's having to answer some difficult questions. The club music must be played and it must be played now. So Louis asks again, will I meet Marshall at some point? And they say, yeah, yeah, of course, of course you will. But he doesn't yet. 
No. One of the interesting things is they're talking about the fact that this is a free seminar and Michael explains that Marshall's strategy is he knows when you give the people what they want, they want more and they'll pay the price, which I feel is very close to how drug dealers talk in The Wire. Even the phrase pay the price, which is often used when talking about killing someone, bad choice of words. It's slightly concerning, but Michael does admit that he spent tens of thousands on Marshall's programs so far. But Marshall is going to make him a millionaire, so not to worry. That's alarming. Tens of thousands. I mean, he's not an old guy and neither is Marshall Silver. So you can't imagine they've been doing this for decades and decades. Over how many years has he spent tens of thousands of dollars? So the Millionaire Mentorship Program, which we'll get to in a bit more depth later, started in 1995. So by this point, it's been running for five years and Michael has already invested tens of thousands of dollars of his own money into this. So even at a minimum, that's $2,000 a year since it started yeah exactly people have started filing into the auditorium at this point for the seminar and louis says loads of people started coming in there's really not loads of people they can't even fill up the first two rows of this massive theater are we gonna go down a trump crowd size narrative with marshall i'm just saying loads is a bit of an exaggeration there's enough there's plenty of people that he can dupe into signing away their life savings i'm sure ten thousand dollars from each of those people adds up to quite a lot i suppose yeah So there's eight minutes to go, we're told, and Marshall is praying to prepare, is how Michael puts this. Louis is pushing again to have access to Marshall. Michael is continuing to hold him off. Louis and Michael are sort of bartering with each other outside Marshall's dressing room door. Louis is sort of pushing as he does, saying, can we come in and see Marshall? Can we just watch while he does his prayer? Michael relents and says he'll go and check. And this reminds me of when you work in retail and there's a customer that just will not leave you alone and they ask you, can you just go and check in the back for that? thing and you just go and stand in the stock room for a minute for like a little rest and then you come back and you're like i'm really sorry we don't have that yeah (laughs) my life before about two and a half years michael goes in to check even though we already know that he knows that it's not happening marshall is not going to speak to louis but and this bit's quite sinister michael still has his mic on yes right this is the ethical quandary at the very heart of this so the narration over the top says and this is how louis puts it as i waited the sound recorders continued to pick up michael's backstage conversation with marshall that's louis kind of wiping his hands off this was a conscious decision that we made this is more like oh the sound equipment was still running what a shame that we heard this interaction. Do you think that that's morally questionable from a journalist's perspective? It's pushing the boundaries of it, isn't it? I guess it is, but it makes for a much juicier documentary. Oh, don't get me wrong. The sound they get is incredible, but there is something to be said for Michael knows he is mic'd, but then Marshall doesn't know Michael is wearing a mic, so how can he be on record about what he says, I suppose? That's true. I assume Michael's probably forgotten as well. Yeah, exactly. I don't think he's done this purposely unless he's playing some shrewd game that we've not picked up on well exactly because when you hear the interaction between them basically michael goes in and you hear him say the bbc wonder if they could speak to you and marshall immediately says no marshall is meant to be in a trance state at this point he's praying praying the bbc don't knock on his door then he immediately launches into giving michael a hard time saying by the way i heard you earlier presumably when he was speed walking past talking about your own business ventures when you should have just been talking about working for me you've made us both look like idiots michael tries to defend himself he says he asked me about what my businesses are and marshall says you look like you're trying to worm in on my territory and i look like an idiot because i'm employing somebody that has a ton of other businesses so i mean we both lost just keep that in mind so if they ask any more questions like that so you know what Correct. talk to marshall 
Dr. Marshall. Which is incredibly controlling language. It feels like organised crime type language. It feels like cult language. Like it's all, yeah, very manipulative. So Michael comes out to Louis and, like you say, says, oh, I'm really sorry. Marshall's in a trance at the moment. (laughs) You know, that old excuse. You can't talk to him. And Louis says, oh, okay." And they're about to leave when someone else comes out and says to Michael, Marshall wants another word with you. I'd forgotten what happened and had the fear. Like, I was like, oh, my God, what's he going to say now? Like, how could it get any worse? (laughs) Michael beats him to death. (laughs) We just hear the sound of it. Actually, what happens is almost more unsettling. Yeah. He goes back in and you hear Marshall suddenly completely change his tune. He says, Please forgive me for kind of biting your head off just now. Just trying to get to the point and juggling a lot of things that are not quite Understood. the way they normally are. Understand. Forgive me. I grabbed you and I, and I just thought about it. And I, my heart was very um, heavy right after you walked away. Well, that wasn't handled well. He sort of just explains himself away and then ends it with, I love you. Like you said, this kind of makes it worse because not only does he get angry and puts Michael in his place, but then brings him back in while the emotions are still probably incredibly raw and then kind of wins him back over in a sense, explains away his anger and makes everything okay again, but still has very much took Michael to task for how he's behaved. This is that kind of, I think they call it love bombing, abusive behavior where, you know, someone can be really awful to you, but then they'll shower you with affection to try and make it all better afterwards. And it can be really confusing. I don't know if you noticed that when Michael comes back out again the second time, he looks so much happier. Yeah, there's a real sense of relief about him. It's all just total manipulation. I mean, Marshall might even have realized that the mic was on at that point. And so he decided to just cover himself. I did think that. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. But I think the fact is that poor Michael is put in a really horrible situation there. Not only is being dressed down by his employer and someone he clearly looks up to, but then has to go out and face a camera and be the kind of buffer between this guy and the person who wants to interview him. I feel really, really bad for Michael. Yeah. But anyway, it's showtime. It's showtime. And Pat who is the other staff member that we saw, introduces Marshall to the crowd, gives him a real big fanfare. And the auditorium is fuller now than it was before when it was embarrassingly empty. Stop talking about crowd size, you're obsessed. Sorry. It's not the size, it's what you do with it, I suppose. (laughs) And Marshall, you hear his mic before the rest of the audience do, where he's kind of doing some warm-up exercises and getting his voice ready. He's doing the Al Pacino hoo-ha as he walks down the aisle from behind the crowd. And I've wrote, it's all very Jordan Belfort at this point. It does feel quite Wolf of Wall Street-y. His look and all the kind of conversations around it. It absolutely is. He jogs on down. It reminds me of the start of Jerry Springer or some kind of talk show like that where he's like high-fiving people. And then he goes up on the stage and immediately just launches into his bit. And he's such a smooth talker. I'm sure that sitting in that audience, you would feel very compelled. Yeah, this is something that I kind of (laughs) twigged on and then couldn't get out of my head he will just ask people questions and ask them to raise their hand in total we see about three different seminars that he's doing and every time he's just going hands up if you ever felt like you always wanted to go to the gym hands up if you ever and this is about 80 percent of the show I think that's a technique, though. I think that's part of the hypnosis element. Absolutely, yeah, it clearly is. And the crowd are eating out of the palm of his hand. They're all adoringly looking up at him. 
Marshall says 95% of the population is led around by their noses by the other 5%. 95% of the money on the planet is controlled by 5% of the population. Half of all the money on the planet is controlled by 1% of the population, which is this really kind of strong anti-establishment, anti-government rhetoric, which we hear a lot these days from various conspiracy movements. But he was straight into that in the early 2000s, which is really interesting. But he's flipped it. He thinks it's a good thing. That's how I read it. Yeah, I think so. He's saying to you, you can become part of this 5%. But I actually was kind of interested in this aspect of what he does. And there was an interview with him from a site, which I don't know. And so I can't tell you how reputable this is, but it's called American Snippets. And they have an interview with him from 2020. Marshall is still alive and still going. And it says, world-renowned hypnotist Marshall opens up on current events, patriotism and emerging from crisis. And he's talking about things that he thought Donald Trump should do. And he says, if I were a businessman president, I would definitely be looking for a way to end the Federal Reserve. Let the Fed pour money into the economy, make it flush again and refuse to pay it back. Tell the Fed the money was never yours to give us, so we're ending you. And then it talks about how Marshall unabashedly calls the IRS a criminal organisation and encourages its demise. So this is clearly a man that's probably been stung by the taxman, but also it's quite radical stuff. Pat takes Louis backstage so we can watch the show from there, or watch the seminar, sorry. It's not technically a show as much as it feels like that. And Marshall is doing hypnosis on someone from the crowd. He asks for a volunteer and a lady volunteers. It kind of escalates and it's quite a lot of quick cuts and lots of stuff's happening in this scene. But it culminates... And Marshall laying a woman lengthways between two ladders and then standing on top of her. Yeah, he's standing on top of this woman who is into hypnosis and she's kind of laid out rigid while the projector behind him reads communication equals wealth. This is just a collection of random buzzwords and striking images to get people's attention. Yeah, I mean, we were joking about karate chopping through concrete, but standing on a woman's rigid body as part of a seminar about how to be more successful in life. It's a distraction technique, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And one of the things that I found really interesting is Pat is talking to Louis backstage and he says, everyone's eyes are on Marshall. They're not reading. They're not taking notes. So if you've gone to this free business seminar to learn something to take away about your business, you're not getting anything. All you've got is a show which is trying to convince you to put up your own cash to get more, essentially. Yeah, by the time you come out of it, all you're saying is, God, remember when he was standing on that woman? And then you're like, well, I better buy the full thing so that I actually learn something from this. So I understand what communication equals wealth actually means. In the end, though, I mean, like we're saying, it works. It's a technique. I think there's a break in the seminar and you hear Marshall saying, we're offering you money off. There's a discount. It's only until the end of this break. So go, 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 get it. And there's a flurry of people getting their credit cards out and they've got those manual bank machines. To click clack over checks, which I haven't seen since I think my dad bought me a Super Nintendo. So apparently 22 people have signed up for the Millionaire Mentors course, which we later find out costs $5,000. And more than 70 people have signed up for the cheaper Turning Points seminar, but it still costs $500 a time. But what's so funny is that Pat, who is revealing this to Louis, almost mentions that as like an afterthought. Clearly, what they really want is people to sign up to this huge five grand seminar. If those numbers are accurate, they have made $145,000 in that one seminar. Holy smokes. It's not bad. And all it took was to break one woman's back as he stood on her. <laughs> I wonder if she was a plant. 
it's hard to say there is a few people in this that you could potentially think are plants but there's also a few people in a later seminar with Marshall who are clearly not and it's quite horrible to see how they open up in these seminars but we'll get to that later Louis finally gets his five minutes with Marshall, face-to-face with the big honcho, the big potato, as you previously described him. They sit next to each other, kind of slightly side-on in a very awkward, tall stools, top-of-the-pop-style interview setup. It's quite strange. And Marshall's swigging from a big bottle of Pepsi the entire time. But Louis says he's got a really strong presence. He says he finds himself struggling to hear what Marshall is actually saying. He says, I feel like I'm falling into your eyes. Sounds quite romantic. But I wonder if by raising this, he's trying to almost cancel that out. Marshall does this thing where he kind of latches onto you and like we've seen with other people, tries to hypnotise you as he's talking to you. So Louis is almost saying, yeah, I see that you're doing this and I don't want to do this right now. And then Marshall really doubles down and actually does just openly start trying to hypnotise Louis by talking to him in that repetitive, soothing way. And Louis says, no, 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 I'm going to resist being hypnotised. I don't want to be hypnotised. And Marshall laughs and continues to sip his Pepsi. I feel like they don't actually say anything substantial here at all. Not even slightly. They say goodbye and Marshall signs off with, you are loved. Which should be nice. But again, it's very unsettling. Yeah, it's kind of like you are loved. So be careful what you say. People who love you don't miss you when I kill you. (laughs) Louis leaves after this, but says he's still feeling puzzled. So he's decided to sign up for the Turning Point seminar himself in a few days time to sort of see what it's all about. But before that, he's going to Marina Del Rey in California to meet with another big player in the hypnotism game, but on a slightly different level. So obviously Marshall is all about business success, whereas Ross Jeffries, the speed seduction specialist, is all about success in romance. We kind of meet Ross on the street. How would you describe Ross? I've written down that when Louis knocks on Ross's door and they see each other for the first time, Ross looks like Louis's stunt double. (laughs) Slightly shorter, slightly... Slightly stockier, a bit older, but same kind of nerdy vibe. That's a great shout. I wrote Ross looks like he could work at Apple. Oh yeah, but definitely in the very early thousands. You say we're going into Ross's house, but I think it's actually the house of Tabitha. This made me feel a bit sick. Tabitha is Ross's cat, the only female who he lets manipulate him. He loves Tabitha so much he bought Tabitha a $800 cat tree. He baby voices the cat and I have a cat and I really like her, but... That made me, like, so creeped out. It's beyond creepy. As someone who's never really had any pets apart from goldfish, is this something the pet owners do? Do you talk as if the cat is speaking? Um, Sometimes I do a voice for the cat, but my cat's, like, quite an angry Scottish old lady. She's not cutesy. Would you do it in front of the BBC? Absolutely not. (laughs) This is the key thing. She says, Danny, that's hardly enough of a present for me. I need more. Louis looks... As disturbed as we all feel, which is quite nice. And so Louis gets to the point which is asking Ross about what speed seduction is. Ross describes it as a way of thinking about women that allows guys to get past a woman's first impression, usually based on his looks or his money or his social status. This is now, what, the third hypnotist we've met and the third in a row who's mentioned money and finances as a big draw for why people are attracted to this. Something that bothers me about this, and I'm sure will bother lots of people, is this generalisation of women as being extremely shallow. It's very us and them and setting up 
this sort of horrible confrontation thing. You can just go out and meet people and talk to them and get to know them. You don't have to have like a game plan. Yeah, just be normal, you fucking freaks. That's our seminar on dating. Instantly, Ross puts the hypno beams on Louis. Louis hasn't got a mirror to direct them back into Ross's <laughs> eyes. But now he's aware of them and he says, I know what you're doing. We kind of get a little look around Ross's apartment. And I notice that he has a Green Lantern poster on the wall and an Eric Cartman stuffed toy. So of its era. I love it. So of his era, but so of a fucking 14-year-old bedroom. Not a grown man. Probably the worst thing, I mean, apart from the $800 cat tree in Ross's house, is his mad whiteboards on the wall which Louis points out and they're just covered in women's names and a collection of chat up lines. Ross explains that these names are belonging to women who he either is seeing or wants to see in the future and all of his chat up lines are phrases that he's working on and language that he's thinking about using to manipulate women basically. These are some of the worst organised whiteboards that I've ever seen in my life. They are scribbled, there doesn't seem to be any sort of sense to them. If you added some string on there it would just be that bit from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. It is that meme. It's also got other phrases such as metastate and also the words blamo are on there. No. Remember that's what that creepy director said in the off-off Broadway episode. Oh God, yeah. Maybe he was one of them too. Oh my God, this is a conspiracy. (laughs) We've cracked it. There is a secret code within Louis documentaries that can be unlocked with the word blamo. Oh, that's thrown me right off. Go back and check that. It's real. It really says blamo on his whiteboard. Oh my God. I really am going to turn into Charlie Day. Okay, so after we've got over that bombshell, Louis and Ross go to the gym. How many times have we gone to the gym now in weird weekends? I honestly think Louis's just looking for a workout while he's away. It's hard when he's on the road all the time, eating all that 7-Eleven food. It's quite a funny little shot of them at the gym because they're both on machines and then all the machines around them are filled as well with like people reading magazines. It's just quite funny that they're sat there very openly talking about how to pick up women and there's all these people, including women, just sat with an earshot going about their daily gym routine. There is a more modest cut of short on Louis than we've normally seen. Oh, he's grown. He's starting to sort of have dad vibes here, dare I say it. Maybe it was the noughties was a more modest era than those fleshy 90s. Ross is telling Louis that the gym is a good place to pick up women and then he's sort of clocking women around. Louis says, is there anyone here? And Ross says, well, yes, there's someone that I'm this close to picking up. And he's had his eye on her for a while, but he doesn't want to point her out to Louis in case that ruins his chances. So obviously Louis just starts looking around like really obviously at every woman. Ross starts speaking about how he uses language which can be interpreted differently by the brain. And Louis is kind of a bit confused by this and asks for an example. So Ross is sat there pedalling away on his bike. Louis on his bike and they're staring each other in the eye. And Ross says, If I then start talking about moving in a new direction, am I saying nude erection or new direction? That's new direction or nude erection. Which is just sinister i wouldn't even know what to think and actually i think that this is the basis of a lot of what ross does is that the women just have no fucking idea what he's talking about and they just want to safely get away all right here's my number just please leave me the fuck alone exactly here's my fake number i would like to know the data on how many of the phone numbers he received were actually real numbers their phone numbers were going in a new direction Louis, after this 
revelation wants to know how is this helping Ross to connect to women if he's just reading a script and Ross argues that it's not like that he is connecting to women he just learned a few phrases to help him get on the way he stresses that this is about making connection on a more personal level but personal for who personal for these women maybe but not personal for him he never gives anything of himself into these interactions not that's real anyway again it's almost like that love bombing thing where the focus is all completely on them but yeah i mean wouldn't you want to know something about the person that you're maybe going to go on a date with so we move from the gym to one of ross's other main pickup spots which is a retail park (laughs) (laughs) Um, so we're walking around but they settle on a coffee shop which is called the coffee bean and tea leaf ross describes this as a primo place for picking up women Side note, coffee bean and tea leaf is still going strong. Still there in Marina Del Rey. Oh, that's nice. Well, I hope that the catbird seat is still there. This is what Ross points out as the best seat in the coffee shop where you can sit and you can make eye contact with anybody who walks in the door. Ross is talking about the fact that they've arrived a little bit late for rush hour, as he puts it. It's almost like a military operation. Also, the catbird seat. That's like the cat is going to catch the bird, right? Yeah. And kill it. Yeah. Obviously, this is somewhere Ross feels this is his kingdom. But Louis asks him about whether he ever goes to discos and bars to pick up people, which is kind of normal in the early 2000s. And Ross says, no, I won't go into a disco or bar. Too loud. Women are there to reject men and get free drinks. I have to shout to be heard. It sucks. Tell you what, I do not go to a disco or bar to reject men. I go to dance to bad pop music my notes are ross is clearly not a dancer maybe louis could have taught him a few things he's got some moves he could have taught him how to boogie but this is clearly something that he's not into it's all about the chase of women which is is his main driving force behind why he goes to particular areas and particular occasions it's interesting though how much of a nerve he touches there like it's obvious that there's a lot of stuff that ross isn't talking about about his own feelings of inadequacy we've all got turned away when we didn't have id when we were 17 mate it's time to let that go. But I think it's interesting that he's not talking about his possible disdain for women that much, but it's there, isn't it? When he says stuff like that. Yeah, it clearly. So then they're still standing outside the coffee bean and tea leaf and there are two blonde women sat there who are kind of nervously looking at the camera every now and again. And then a different man who's not with Louis and Ross approaches them and talks to them and kind of gets rebuffed. And Louis shouts over and says, was he trying to pick you up? And... They say, no, no, one of them who's got this amazing like Meg Ryan haircut. Yeah. She says, no, I just moved here. I don't really know anybody. And Ross just immediately zones in on her, sits down next to her and is shaking her hand. And he says, oh, you're from the Midwest, aren't you? And he's talking about what her accent sounds like. And then he goes from that to just like telling her all these things about herself that he's just making these mad assumptions. Like, you're a very vivid daydreamer. But the thing is, Jen... Well, as we learn, her name is Jen. Meg Ryan haircut totally buys into this and says, you're right. How did you know that? Cut to Louis, who is again (laughs) grimacing in the background. So then Ross starts to talk about the fact that he does hypnosis to Jen. And he talks about how he does a form of hypnosis, which involves no sleep. He says, I call it blissnosis, which is very odd. So we cut from this to Louis, Ross and Jen all standing together a little bit further away from the cafe. And it's this kind of how did it all go sort of interview. Jen, who if you were going to put money on anyone being a plant in this documentary, Jen feels like the plant, says, I don't think of it as being picked up. We had a great conversation. Then they talk about how they're going to go for coffee. And there's this weird moment where Ross runs his finger up her arm and she responds really positively to this. He's running his finger up slowly and he's saying better 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 and 
Yeah, she seems to be loving it. And Louis just goes, Am I on Planet Lala? No. What is going on? Does that feel on? good? Do you want to be on TV Why, or does something? Does it feel good? Which is a fair question because Jen's response is so odd from start to finish. Even if you go back to her initial response to Louis's question, which is, was he trying to pick you up? Her response is, no, I don't know many people. I just moved here yesterday. Which sounds like an absolute lie. <laughs> it isn't what he asked. He didn't ask that. One of the biggest mistakes of people who are lying is that they always give too much information. I don't know. I can't say for certain that this is a plant, but it feels very weird. Ross asks Louis what noise he makes in his head when he sees a woman. At the end of this line, I've just written like three question marks. Are you not going to give me a sample of the noises that Ross gives? So the noise that Ross thinks Louis hears when he sees a woman is, ah, (laughs) but what Ross hears when he sees a woman is, hmm, or ooh. And then Louis just goes, I feel like I'm going to throw up. (laughs) I quite enjoyed the disdain that Louis has for Ross at this point. So we're back at Shay Tabitha, aka Ross's house, and Louis is talking about his misgivings, but he's gone for a one-on-one consultation with Ross. The most important prop for Louis in his attempt to pick up women is the glow-in-the-dark night sky book, which apparently transports women back to their childhoods where they would look up at the stars. Takes them back to being little girls is what he says. Is he confusing little girls with Sir Patrick Moore? <laughs> with Brian Cox. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when little girls are the keyboardist for D-Ream. <laughs> so we get to see this in action because we go down to the street and Louis takes a seat with Ross on a public bench and they're reprogramming him. And the main thing about reprogramming is not to speak from your chest where you say things like, hi, I'm Louis, I'm a loser. But to speak from the top of your neck and say things like, hi, I'm Louis. I don't know what else he says. But that was the main message I took away from Ross's reprogramming. And so then Ross has got him running the gauntlet and he is set up this task where Ross has headphones on connected to Louis's mic and Louis has to go speak to random women on the street and his chat-up line is, Hi, I'm Louis. What's your favourite constellation? Yeah, and he's got the book with him so they can look at the constellations together. And so he has a few first attempts... And it doesn't really work out. So he goes back to Ross and says, this isn't working. And Ross says, you have to remember CIQ, compliment, introduction, question. So you have to start by going, Alex, that's a lovely hat you're wearing. My name's Matt. Do you like hats? And kids, that's how he met your mother. (laughs) (laughs) Louis starts to do a bit better. He takes on the CIQ format and there's a few very attractive women who do talk to him after he kind of shoves the -the glow-in-the-dark star book in their face. Hi. I just wanted to say you have the most amazing energy about you. Oh, thanks. My name's Louis. Jane, nice to meet you. How are you doing? (laughs) He has a near miss where he kind of is speaking to someone and then asks for her number and she says, well, you can give me your number. He goes back to creepy dad Ross, who's really proud, but Louis wants to keep going. He's still determined to see this out. So he finally approaches someone and she says, what are you selling? And he says, oh, I'm not selling anything. I'm kind of selling myself. (laughs) and then they talk for a while and then he gets the number and he goes back to Ross and Ross goes for a high five but Louis doesn't want to give it him. Louis is quite disgusted with himself. He says, I feel really weird about this. It's obviously a powerful tool 
And Ross is really pumped up and he's like, yeah, yeah. But Louis says, I think it could be really destructive. He says, in the wrong hands, it can be a disaster. You can manipulate people. And I was very much transported to Jeff Goldblum in Jurassic Park saying, Your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. Ross says, you've not done anything wrong. I mean, what have you done? You've made a woman feel good about herself. How is there anything wrong with that? But I think when you think about this as the starting point of what we now know as pickup artist culture, it becomes something bad so quickly. You're right. This is where it kind of gets interesting is how this develops. In this time that's passed since, The Game by Neil Strauss came out, which was the book which transformed the pickup artist culture from small subculture to something which really became a huge phenomenon for a lot of people. Ross met Neil Strauss in 2014 and he didn't know he was a writer. This is an article in The Telegraph in 2014 talking about this. A quote from him is, I think all along Neil was posing as people's friends. I think he posed as my friend, posed as mystery friends, I'm assuming that's another pickup artist, and then turned around and did us in the ass when it was time to ridicule us and write his book. So he obviously feels that he was completely done over by this book which took what he did and wrote a huge bestseller with it and then according to something which i found from earlier this year a youtube channel called the game global has an interview with ross jeffries back in march which says that he's retiring he's moving away from this as of 2020 i think you can retire from something like that just go cold turkey and be like i'm not going to manipulate anyone ever again you just stop saying the words new direction at people i think that would be so hard to stop (laughs) Not specifically New Direction, (laughs) but... Pickup artist culture really spirals. And then there's an article from 2019 in The Guardian from a journalist called Siren Carly. He's saying, 50 years of pickup artist, why is this toxic skill so in demand? And she speaks to someone from Warwick University who wrote a book about this whole culture. And she says, this impoverished view of sex and relationships in which intimacy is less something to be experienced for its own sake and more something to be achieved for other ends. Even if you are just paying someone a compliment, you're making them feel a certain way, but you are not giving anything about yourself away into that relationship. As Alex and I touched upon, the pickup artist movement grows out of Ross Jeffrey's Night Sky books and into something much darker. To find out more about this, I spoke to Sarah Banay-Weiser, Professor of Media and Communications at London School of Economics and Political Science. Sarah co-wrote a paper titled From Pickup Artist to Incels and explains to me how the pickup audience has evolved since the turn of the millennium. My name is Sarah Benet-Weiser, and I am a professor of media and communications at the London School of Economics. And my research has, in the past several years, focused on popular feminism and popular misogyny and the various ways in which these ideologies and practices and artifacts circulate within and on multiple media platforms. You co-wrote a paper entitled From Pickup Artists to Incels. How did this subject first appear on your radar and what made you want to delve into this topic so deeply? So I started out around 2012, 2013, after I had written a book about brand culture and consumer citizenship. And I started thinking about what it meant that we were seeing in the media so many more images of sort of popular feminist slogans and popular feminist artifacts from, you know, Beyonce to Instagram to Tumblr pages that told women to just to be confident and that kind of thing. And so I was really doing a deep dive into those kinds of mediated messages 
messages of a certain kind of popular feminism. And every single time I would investigate some kind of feminist message that was circulating on popular media, I would find an increasingly hostile rejoinder to those messages in the form of what I began to call popular misogyny. And so I was looking at things from online harassment to Gamergate to all the different ways in which we've seen in the last, really the last decade, misogyny to become something that is actually much more on the surface, much more overt, much more normalized than it had been before. And one of the things I noticed was that a lot of the misogynistic messages and practices that I was seeing kind of focused on young men being victimized by women. So young men were seen to be kind of injured by feminism, in particular women in general. And in a very specific way, I started to see many more mediated messages about young men being victimized by women because they would not engage in a sexual relationship with them. So it was about being rejected by women sexually. And then in 2014, Elliot Roger in Santa Barbara, California, went on a shooting rampage and killed several women and left a manifesto on YouTube about how he was a, what he called himself, a failed pickup artist and how he was getting revenge at all these women who refused to go out with him and refused to sleep with him, basically. So I ended up looking more into the whole pickup artist industry, not even knowing anything about it, really coming at it through Elliot Roger. And then when I did more research, it turns out that there's a, like I said, like an entire industry that really flourished in the early 2000s. And so I began to write about that as part of this broader context of popular misogyny the year 2000 or late 1999, essentially. How big is the pickup artist movement at this point in time? Are we close to where it's kind of the peak of its powers or is it still got a long way to go? Ross Jeffries is one of the first ones, right? And so his movement has to pick up momentum. So I think it was still a relatively low profile, low visibility movement in 2000. Neil Strauss wrote The Game in 2005, which is a kind of guidebook for pickup artists. In 2007, the cable channel VH1 produced a reality television show called The Pickup Artist that was based on The Game. So I think that the peak of pickup artist in terms of the different boot camps and what the scholar Rachel O'Neill calls seduction communities. Those really come into heightened visibility from 2005 to probably 2010, I would say. You mentioned this VH1 reality show, The Pickup Artist. Can you tell me a bit about that show and why that was such a significant point in the movement? So the show follows a kind of basic reality competition program format. They have a pickup artist guru that is at the center of the program. And they gather 10 men who are both self-identified and identified by the program as losers, especially in terms of relationship, extreme anxiety of talking to women, a 40-year-old virgin, you know, all these men who come into this house, just like in The Bachelor or any of these other reality programs where you bring everyone together in one house. And then each week they would compete. They would learn, you know, would be taught some pickup artist techniques from the group of gurus and then would have to go what they call in field, which is to nightclubs and bars and stuff and practice them. And each week, the person who did the worst job was kicked off the show. 
I don't even know what the audience engagement with that show was at the time. But the reason why I do think it's significant is that once you have a major cable network like VH1, putting in the money and the time to produce a reality program based on this idea of the pickup artist, you know that it has reached a certain kind of visibility and popular culture. Part of your paper is that you track what we see as the pickup artist movement into what is now known as the incel culture. Can you give us a very brief overview of what incel culture is and the point where these two overlapped? Incel stands for involuntary celibate, and it is a community of men who have chosen to be celibate, chosen to not engage with women because they have been rejected by women and because they blame women and feminism for their rejection, for their sense of loss, for their sense of injury. And if you trace the history of incels in general, you see that it started out online, like many of these things do, as a community that was bonded around things like loneliness and sadness, where you're feeling lonely in a world that is ravaged by neoliberalism, that is ravaged by precarity and job losses, and you gather together in a community. And actually, I think the initial coining of the term incel was by a woman, not a man. What you can see, though, by looking at this stuff historically is that that online community morphs from a community that is bound by things like sadness and loneliness to one that is bound by rage and misogyny. And so it becomes a community where the blame for that sense of loss and the blame for that sense of injury is directed towards women. And so I think it is important to remember that it's not that these are necessarily false senses of loss. This was 2007. 2008. That's the global economic collapse. Hundreds of millions of people lost their jobs, were forced into precarity, lost their homes. There was a real sense of loss and of injury. But interestingly, this particular community, instead of blaming capitalism or blaming the banks or blaming greed, they blamed women. And so their targets became women. Capitalism is designed to keep so many people at the bottom, right? But instead of pushing back at those areas, this particular community set its sights on women as their targets of rage and of hate and eventually murder. You have a remarkable number of mass shootings in the United States, and you can trace almost all of those mass shooters to some kind of misogynistic impulse, whether or not that's a history of domestic violence, a boy being rejected by a girl in high school and then feeling humiliated, so brings a gun and shoots up the classroom. Rejection by women is a huge part of the manifestos that are left behind by mass shooters. Misogyny isn't a peripheral side gig for the extreme right. It is the core of the extreme right. It is about controlling women in a particular way. And so this is a big question, and I suppose there's no real answer, but what is the solution here? Is there anything that can be done to address these issues? I would be super famous if I knew that answer. (laughs) (laughs) I think one of the things that in my mind would be a crucial turning point is if there would be a way that culture and society, regardless of where it is in the globe, could actually communicate and convince men that 
this form of patriarchy is also detrimental to them. In other words, patriarchy is seen often as a broad historical context that is about inequity between men and women, about controlling women, about men being superior women, and all that is true. But in that broad context, men are also shaped and disciplined by patriarchy. And so if we could open the kind of context to think about why it is that men feel lost, that men feel injury, that they feel cheated by certain things as a way to reject the idea that it's about women. I think would help us unpack what are some of the reasons for this hatred? What are some of the reasons that spurn this kind of violence on? Louis, before he says goodbye to Ross, says that he's away to do a seminar with Marshall Silver. And Ross says that he thinks Marshall Silver is awesome. And tell him that Ross says hi. Mm, Surprise, surprise. So Louis is back in Vegas and his first stop is at Michael's house. Michael being Marshall's assistant who we met earlier. And I've wrote, we get to see Michael's house, which is a modest home for a close to it millionaire, which I feel a bit nasty about saying, but I also think I worry about him and his involvement in this world. There are people who argue that to become rich you have to not spend all of your money and you have to save it and invest it well clearly michael is spending his money somewhere because there is a lot of star wars action figures around the place he's a big fan of star wars and they talk about this and michael sort of says that he likes yoda's outlook on things and it basically culminates in michael saying to louis take this yoda toy out of my hand and louis making what i can only describe as yoda sex noises as he claims he can't take the toy out of michael's hand Try. Go ahead. Try. I am trying. Are you trying? You're not taking it out. Try. And the main message that Michael takes from Yoda is, do or do not, there is no try. But Louis just seems to be enjoying himself playing with action figures, as usual. So they have a little task together, which is classic Louis. They sit and they're going to make a dream board where you cut out pictures of things that you aspire to from magazines and you stick it on a board together and then Louis meant to look at it and that's what he's aspiring to in his life. And there's things like a couple that's having a good relationship. Louis cuts out a picture of Jack Kerouac because he wants to be a writer. I found that really interesting that he said I like to be writing. He talks about wanting to look like Tom Cruise, Louis being six foot three plus and Tom Cruise being five foot seven. But did you know that in the film Magnolia, where Tom Cruise plays a kind of pickup artist, the inspiration for that was Ross Jeffries. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh. Also, I mean, I don't think they actually meet in the end, but Louis and Tom Cruise have got some future history, don't they? Oh, God, yeah, they will go head to head. But anyway, they talk about Michael's use of language and particularly that he goes back to this phrase, no challenge instead of no problem. And he says that people want to take on challenges. They will run towards a challenge, but people naturally will avoid a problem. They'll push that aside. It's not a bad rationalisation, to be honest, but I can't see myself saying no challenge. Yeah, that's the thing. I think the effort to change your language patterns is just too much. But I agree. So Louis then wants to test Michael's positive attitude and throws a number of hypothetical situations at him. One being a cancer diagnosis. Awesome. Awesome. He's doing awesome after that. And the second is being maimed by a car. Awesome. Awesome. Alive. Great to be here. Michael is obviously very, might be mean to say indoctrinated by this language, but he's very much in it. 
Louis says he gets annoyed at himself because his problem is that he changes commitments all the time. I wrote reassuring to know that the big man has very relatable issues. He seemed quite sad, doesn't he, when he says that? Yeah. A little bit hard on himself. You're okay, Louis. You're accomplishing a lot of novels. Hey, Louis, 20 years time, you're laughing because someone is doing a podcast about the stuff you do, so... Do you think that would blow 2000 Louis's mind? I think they'd have to explain the concept of podcast to him. Michael says, again, this is something that I feel like he's learned probably from Marshall because it doesn't sound like something he would say from what we've seen of him. He seems like quite a gentle guy. And then he describes himself as the wolf outside the pen. So he's saying the majority of other people in life are sheep that are in a pen, but he's the wolf that is free to roam outside. And Louis says, well, doesn't the wolf eat the sheep? And Michael says, yes, when it wants to. Which is like really threatening. Yeah, again, and doesn't seem like something Michael would genuinely say. So then they're in the car going towards the seminar and Louis asks the big questions. Michael says he did the millionaire mentorship program. He believes he'll be a millionaire in two to three years. Louis says, since the program started in 1995, has there been a single millionaire? Michael doesn't know, he says. You'd have to ask Marshall. He either doesn't know or he won't answer. I sort of felt like Louis was starting to lose it at this point. Like he'd sort of suspended his disbelief until this point. But now he's getting a bit annoyed and it makes the scene come across as quite confrontational. There comes a point when this where I think it's my favourite Louis. It's the Louis that is willing to challenge silly constructs that are potentially harming other people. Which I do kind of feel about these seminars as we get further into them. But first off... We get to the name tag point. Everyone's got to get signed in and get their name tags. There's a sign at the seminar which says that this is a joint seminar between Marshall, Silva, and another guy called Don Wolf, who is, according to DonWolf.com, an innovator, inventor, and ingenious leader. So Louis sits in the seminar with his mouth hanging open. He's got glazed eyes. In the way that Pat pointed out that everybody was looking at Marshall the whole time, it seems like Louis's kind of gotten sucked in. Yeah, absolutely. Marshall's on stage. There's a big poster of a heart behind him with like a safe code. What do you call one of those What people use to crack safes? What do you call this? A dial that turns... Again, it's one of these very abstract images that Marshall seems to rely on. And they're playing the game of hands up again. And Marshall is asking a series of questions as everyone stares at him agog. Would you do all the things you needed to do to be a millionaire if you knew them? People put their hands up. He says, some people are lying. You won't do that. And then he says, even if you think we're only telling you to do it for our personal gain, how many of you are willing to trust us? What sort of trust boundary is that? What are you asking people to do there? Louis doesn't raise his hand at this one. Marshall basically says you wake up and you decide that you are going to be a millionaire and then you will open yourself up to be able to become one it's putting the blame on the person like oh you've just been too weak until this point yeah Again, poverty is a choice kind of myth that is so at the heart of all this. This is the bit where I switched from, oh, this is kind of fun and interesting to this is really scary. So these are the one-on-one sessions that Marshall has with people in the crowd. First up is a guy called Mark, who is essentially describing his issues. But what he's really talking about is kind of a cycle of depression, that idea of not doing the right thing because you don't have the right motivation and then failing and then feeling more unmotivated because you didn't do the right thing. So then Marshall takes this on a weird tangent and starts speaking about his relationships and says, do you want to be married? And Mark goes, "Uh, yeah. And he says, but you're worried that you won't be able to provide for your partner and then they'll leave you. And clearly Mark is like, Uh, Not really what I'm saying, mate. Yeah, this seems completely irrelevant to what he was saying. And Marshall says, you did it, not me. You put that on there. 
The second person is a woman who's on the verge of tears from the very start. Marshall is asking her about growing up poor and she's clearly in floods of tears. This is where it feels like it's playing with people's emotions to get monetary gain more than it is ever trying to help people. After the seminar's finished, Louis talks to Mark about the millionaire mentorship program and says, do you think that you'll do that? And Mark says he would like to. He maybe would have done one this week, but he couldn't get off work to do it. And then Louis says, you know, that one costs $5,000, right? And Mark's response was absolutely hilarious, which was, wow, really? Yeah, I mean, Mark is a, what did he say, a custodian at a school or something like that? A hotel, I think he said. There's no way he's going to pay $5,000. Then we see Rocky, who's another member of Marshall's staff, talking to this woman who was already crying and she's still crying. And he's talking to her about how she wants to take her business to the next level. She has a massage business or something. You want to take your business to the next level, don't you? Well, you just have to follow the steps. We're here to help you and all this positive language, but in a quite creepy tone and then he hugs her then she leaves and louis goes to talk to rocky about this and says oh that was very intense and rocky says well miracles can happen at any time and then they get into a conversation i feel like louis possibly loses his temper a little bit here talking about the exploitative nature of what marshall does and rocky says it's about the perception of him that the perception of marshall as this amazing guy can do a lot to change people and help their lives and louis killer line here is so you're saying even a charlatan can create real results rocky stupidly says yeah it's exactly that which i'm sure marshall was very pleased to hear and then we cut back to more of the seminar there's more tears there's people hugging there's back massages in a conga line and i wrote it's just people desperate for a connection to someone it's more like therapy absolutely and then what we see is a session where people are sat paired together and they are meant to confess things or talk about things from their childhood Louis is talking to this older man as though he's speaking to his own dad and he talks about how he thinks his dad came down too hard on him when he found out that he was smoking joints. But other people are really opening up, aren't they? And saying like, oh, I don't like my brother. (laughs) You see Michael saying, dad, I didn't like it that you weren't around for me when I was a kid. The idea being that the other person then throws this over their shoulder like water. And that's it. You're fixed. And now you can be a millionaire. Go on. Congrats. So then we see a little bit of Don Wolf in action. He goes up to Louis and Louis is kind of nervously looking at him because he knows what's coming. And then sleep, he's put under. So he's hypnotized and he's lying there on the man next to him. And he's asked to go back to his childhood. He remembers playing hide and seek with his parents, probably hiding the joints that he was smoking from them. And then he's told that he should bring this vitality of youth back to him when he comes back from the hypnosis. And he sits back up and looks a little bit embarrassed about the whole interaction. Watching this, I was just thinking, he's playing along, but is it real? And then Louis says in the voiceover, I wasn't sure. I don't know if it was real or if I was just doing it because I felt like I should. And we're back to Silver because Silver is doing his millionaire mentorship program now, which Louis has signed up for. Thank you, BBC Budget. I've wrote, there is more fucking questions and hands in the air. It doesn't matter how much money you pay Marshall, he's still going to do that game with you. Louis gets his last chance to really speak to Silver one-on-one. First thing he asks him is, how many millionaires has he created? And Marshall says he's created 10 millionaires and he plans to create 100 over the next four or five years, actually. That's some rate of growth. Yeah, and also four or five years doesn't sound like someone who's got that really marked out particularly well. So he's done 10 in five years and he's going to do 90 more in, <laughs> in the next four or five years. 
He's got them lined up. They're so close. They've got £999,000. Louis points out, of course, if you've made 10 millionaires, why are there no testimonials? Why don't you get these people to come to these seminars and say, I made a million dollars because of Marshall Silver? And Marshall tells Louis, well, the sceptics don't come to the seminars, so we don't need to wheel out the millionaires, which is just the most frustrating thing to say. So Marshall is then talking to Louis about Louis' scepticism, saying it doesn't serve you being this sceptical and Louis says well does that mean I can't be a millionaire and he says no because he doesn't have the faith of a mustard seed and therefore he will never be a millionaire and basically all we have here is this stalemate where Louis's annoyed because Marshall's a liar and Marshall's annoyed because Louis's pointing out that he's a liar and they're just butting heads and getting angry at each other and it's just this really frustrating end but probably quite a fitting end to this mental situation. But I'm proud of Louis for taking these questions directly to Marshall himself. Yeah because he is an intimidating guy. The way that he's kept at arm's length almost builds him up to being this untouchable person so it probably is quite ballsy to actually ask him these questions outright. The end of the episode is quite, I don't know, quite sad in a way. Again, it's Louis and Michael and I almost get the impression that Louis feels like Michael's betrayed him a little bit or something like that. The two of them are walking outside a casino and Louis just says to Michael, he hasn't created a single millionaire, has he? There's no more pretense. And Michael sticks with him and says, no, you're wrong. He has. He wouldn't say it unless he has. And then Michael is talking more about wolves and sheeps and stuff like this. And Louis kind of loses it with the business jargon and says, can you just relate to me as a human being? It's this very kind of bitter goodbye where Louis is walking backwards as he's leaving and he's like, yeah, well, okay, when are you going to be a millionaire? Two, three years, yeah? When are you going to be a multimillionaire? It's kind of a horrible way for them to end it. It is. It is sad. And especially because they're still talking about being a wolf or a sheep and Louis says, I'm too tired to be a wolf. Oh my God, I felt that on so many levels. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) And there is something about that lifestyle, the way of talking, the language, the mindset, which just seems exhausting. And never being allowed to openly express a negative emotion or just say something shit. That seems to be completely unallowed in this culture. The thing that I need to know now, Matt, Go on. Did Michael become a millionaire within two to three years of the filming of this documentary? Well, Alex, we turn to the publication LA Weekly for our postscript on this. So an article from LA Weekly is talking of the decade that was, and they did this in 2009, where they're going through big incidents that happened in the decade. And their entry for April 10th, 2003 is Las Vegas hypnotist Marshall Silva is indicted by a grand jury on nine felony counts of theft and false pretenses. He ordered finance classes and promised a money-back guarantee if clients couldn't double the fee between $4,000 and $6,000 within three months. His trial ends up with a deadlock jury. It hasn't been retried. So clearly, the Millionaire Mentorship Programme ended up causing a lot of issues for Marshall. And there was an article from 2003 by the Las Vegas Sun, which is talking about the case where some of the people who were put into the Millionaire Mentorship Programme are testifying against Marshall. And blame is put directly at Michael Yee. He's described as Silver's Enterprises Director of Mentor Services. So they talk about the fact that if they felt like they were getting nothing from this programme, they would put the request to Michael and Michael would deny them based on the fact that they weren't following their mentorship rigidly enough, whether they were missing a diary entry on a daily planner or some other kind of trivial thing which stopped them being allowed to get a refund for their lack of money, essentially, that they'd made on this. 
So we don't really know what happened to Michael, but presumably he might have faced some kind of legal charge as well. Well, he was directly involved in this trial and they talk about the fact that he has left the business by this point. So who knows where Michael ended up? I hope he found something a bit more normal and a bit more nourishing than this relationship. Safe to say, I think we would have known if he'd become a millionaire. Yeah, you'd probably know. You'd probably know. Interestingly, remember our friend Jeffrey O'Connor? I do indeed, the director of many episodes of Weird Weekends. Well, he directed this episode of Weird Weekends, as you are probably aware, because you also spoke to him about it. (laughs) And when we spoke to him a few months ago now, he did talk about it a little bit and about the filming of it. So this is what Jeffrey had to say. Marshall Silver, S-Y-L... V-E-R. So he's this Vegas hypnotist, right? So when we're making the film, we're filming with Marshall and he's kind of a dodgy character. He ended up being indicted by the Nevada Attorney General's office for a kind of pyramid scheme, you know, million dollar mentor program, which we filmed in the course. And Louis was asking a lot of difficult questions. But early on, I got a call one day from his sort of producer, the guy that was running his company, and says, listen, I need to meet you for coffee. We've got a problem. When you hear that as a producer in the middle of a shoot, that's like the worst kind of phone call you can get because it means like they're going to shut you down. So I went with Jim Margolis, who was the AP at the time. Jim and I go to this Denny's coffee shop and meet with this guy. And he's sitting across from us. We do a little chit chat. And then he says, listen, what's going on here? I don't believe this guy's really a presenter correspondent. You guys are pulling something. And (laughs) we were just like, no, no. The guy's really a presenter correspondent. We're with the BBC. There are no smoke and mirrors here. Literally, we went back and forth for like a half an hour. And I could just feel like we were in the Titanic heading for the iceberg. The whole thing was going to go down. But eventually, we sort of talked him out of it, out of like nixing the shoe. So clearly at the time even, everybody had a feeling that it was not going to be a smooth sailing ending for Marshall Silver. Well, that's true, but Marshall's still going and still being interviewed as the millionaire maker hypnotist. So the Marshall show continues. I mean, the thing is that Jordan Belfort went to jail and he is also still doing seminars and everyone wants to be the Wolf of Wall Street. So crime pays, children. Marshall, what we're saying is get yourself a Scorsese film and you'll be fine. And then as Jeffrey O'Connor also talked to us about, something that they found very early on in Weird Weekends was that if you have a really sad or depressing down moment that's just too real, then you need to follow up with something funny because that's just how the Weird Weekends dynamic works. So the end of the episode, we cut back to our pal Dennis, who is our much preferred hypnosis person, and he's trying to hypnotise a dog with arthritis a little corgi that has no idea what's going on but it's enjoying the belly rubs and he's telling the dog you can be whoever you want to be and you can achieve whatever you want and that dog went on to be a millionaire so alex the question as always is is this good louis or is this bad louis i think i always knew that i enjoyed this episode but i think this is maybe one of my favorite episodes after this rewatch 
I think I like it because it's something that I'm quite skeptical of myself. And I think that it kind of sells you the hypnosis thing and you're able to be like, that looks great. I could be a millionaire. And then it also shows you that actually it's just taking advantage of a lot of people. And I quite like that it gets Louis heated as well. We are getting more serious as we go along on Weird Weekends, but I think you see a little bit of the fire. It's quite different to the Christianity episode where he sort of just goes along with everything. He's observing in that. Whereas in this, he's saying, well, actually, I think maybe this is bad. You're right. Having watched this back, this is maybe, if not the seminal episode of Weird Weekends, it's up there. It's close to being one of the most important episodes because I feel like the subject matter still exists so strongly today. Maybe not hypnosis, but the idea of personal growth and self-fulfillment and the swindle that happens with that where people's troubles and issues are exploited by people who say they've got this magic fix. And also the way Louis approaches it, like you said, he is openly critical and doesn't really take any prisoners in this one. He's not afraid to say that he doesn't buy into people's ideas. He doesn't give Ross Jeffries an easy time, even though he goes along with his pickup techniques. He's quick to say, I see what this is, but I am also very troubled by it. And yeah, that moment where it's the kind of final showdown between him and Marshall is really great. Proper grip in TV. So yeah, good Louis, bordering on great Louis. I agree. Great Louis from both of us might be a record. Let's not play with the scale too much. Thanks for listening. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram for more chat at all through pod. Next time we'll be discussing Weird Weekend Series 3, Episode 2, India Enlightenment. You can watch it on BBC iPlayer if you want to do your homework. Angels on your bodies.